curious about that or are wondering, uh, then Discover Grace is for you. We talk about that. And then the second question is, what is the church all about? What are we about? What are we to do as the local church following Jesus? And so uh, those are the two questions that we cover in Discover Grace. What is a Christian? What do Christians believe? And then what is it that the local church does? And so if you are curious uh, about our church or about Christianity, then I would invite you to uh, go through Discover Grace with me. Uh, We will meet in September. Uh, We'll start meeting in September. The dates are on the bulletin. Uh, You can check that out. Uh, if If you would, we need you to register for that class so we know uh, how many to expect and if we need child care or not. And you can do that by scanning the QR code on the front of your bulletin. We have gotten high tech. All right. In fact, if you scan that QR code, you can do a number of things. If you're new and you would like us to uh, if you would like for us to reach out to you, you can fill out a contact form by scanning the QR code. If you would like a convenient way to give, you can scan the QR code. And if you want to register for Discover Grace, scan the QR code. So you kind of see the theme there. If you want to register for our church calendar on Google, scan the QR code. It's really handy, right? So a lot of things you can do via just scanning that QR code. Uh, If you don't know what a QR code is, just come talk to me after the worship service. So uh, we are back in the Gospel of Matthew uh, one of the things that we do here at Grace is we walk through whole books of the Bible. Uh, and we actually started Matthew back uh, in last December. Uh, went through uh, the first part of Matthew, or the, well, not really even the first part. It's going to take a long time. But uh, we went through Matthew in the spring. Uh, we took a break over the summer to look at the Psalms, and this is our first Sunday back. So if you would turn with, you, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 is where we'll be. Uh, and just to jog your memory or to inform you in case you haven't been with us through the study, uh, when you jump in in Matthew chapter 6, you are jumping in in the middle of what is called the Sermon on the Mount. It's called that because Jesus, it's, it's a long section of Jesus' teaching that he is, he's teaching his followers and they are on a mountain. Hence the clever name, Sermon on the Mount. Far more important than the name is what Jesus is doing in the sermon. He is describing what life in God's kingdom looks like. In other words, if, if you seek for God uh, to, to live your life under God's rule and authority, then Jesus is describing your life. He's describing uh, your desires, your want-tos, what you should want, what you shouldn't want. What your character should look like. What sort of priorities you should focus on in life. He tells us how to give, how to pray, how not to pray. What Jesus is doing is describing a counter-cultural community. This, this group of people who live in the midst of the, the cultures in which they find themselves. So in our case, right, uh, Southeastern United States, uh, rural, suburban, something, Alabama, right? Whatever culture you find yourself in, whatever culture you come from, Jesus is talking to people who find themselves living in the world, but who do not march to its drumbeat. They are countercultural because they march to his 
drumbeat. He redefines everything. That's a really, really simple way of saying this, that if you are in relationship to Jesus, he radically changes everything about you. That word radical, the way we use it, means, you know, complete, total, big. The older form of that word, radical, means from the root. But you can see how they're connected. Because if Jesus changes you from the root, then that changes complete and total. There is no part of your life that Jesus leaves untouched. And sometimes that's uncomfortable. Right? Um, One of those radical differences between Jesus' kingdom and the other kingdoms around is his view of wealth. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. I know back during the summer we were standing for the reading of God's Word, but I want you to keep your seats because I think it's easier for you to keep your Bibles open. You can show it to your kids. If you have kids with you, you can get your journal out or you can write in the, uh, the bulletin. But we're going to look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. If you're using the church Bible, that's page 811. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. All flesh is like grass. And all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, when we talk about our wealth, it gets personal. And so, Lord, I'm thankful that you don't mind getting personal with us. But, Lord, I pray that more than just feel guilty we would feel transformed, that you would give us a better vision of what it is we can do with the wealth that you have given us. So, Lord, would you take your word and and would you transform our hearts and our lives with it? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Fortune magazine recently published the results of a survey from U.S. Bank's Uh, asked respondents to select up to three options on how they would define uh, what it means to be wealthy. Uh, Now, most baby boomers, 61%, agreed that being wealthy simply meant having financial security. Gen Z, on the other hand, uh, that's so if you're born between 1997-ish, to 2012, you're Gen Z. Gen Z was split on what wealthy meant. 
38% defined it as having a better quality of life. Uh, 36% defined wealthy as being financially secure, so they agreed with the boomers. And then 28% followed, uh, they, they said, being wealthy meant living life how I want. So a lot of confusion on what it means to be wealthy. Uh, speaking of generations, we are in the midst of the greatest wealth transfer in human history. Uh, People who study these sorts of things have been talking about this for decades now. Uh, but according to a, a recent New York Times article, baby boomers hold about $78 trillion in assets. $78 trillion in assets for the, for the United States. Okay, uh, And so they have already begun, because they're leaving the workforce and retiring, etc., begun transferring that to the next generations. So... Here's a question, just to start off. What do you, to you, what does it mean to be wealthy? And maybe here's a better question, because it might help you answer the first one. What is your wealth for? Whether you have a little, or you have a lot, or you're somewhere in between, you have a view of wealth management, what you're supposed to do with the money that you have. Your view of wealth management may be not to manage it at all. It may be to spend it as quickly as you can. Uh, your view of wealth management may be to save of it, uh, as much of it as you can, as safely as you can. But all of us, whether we have a lot of wealth or a little wealth, Jesus is telling us how we are to, management, to manage it. And so that's what we're going to look at today. One book I highly recommend, we actually gave this book away a few years ago to the whole church, is a book by Randy Alcorn, A-L-C-O-R-N, and the book is called The Treasure Principle, and it's an extended teaching on this passage. So a lot of what I say today uh, probably comes from reading uh, Randy's book uh, and other studies, but I, I highly recommend to you Randy Alcorn's book, The Treasure Principle. All right, uh, so Jesus changes our view of wealth in three ways. One, how we use it. Two, how we see it. And three, how we hold it. How we use it, how we see it, how we hold it. All right? First, how we use it. What should I do with the wealth that I have or the wealth that I'm going to have, right? Because it's easy to start talking about wealth, uh, and if you're under the age of 15, you'll be like, well, I have no wealth. Uh, so this sermon does not apply to me. But actually, you're the ones that I want particularly listening to this. In fact, the ones that I want to pay particular attention would be those in my generation and younger. If you're older... You're important, okay? Um, but the ones, right, like in the coming years, you are transferring your wealth, okay, to the rest of us. So um, the people that I want to pay particular attention to this are those who will be coming into that wealth, particularly because we're going to be training our children uh, on how to use the wealth that God has given us. So 
What should I do with my wealth? And all of us are looking for kind of the best investment strategy, right? Even the, even the spenders, right? Your, your strategy is spend it now, uh, right? Great re- like little risk, great reward. Spend it right now. Um, some of us, you know, if you invest in the stock market, uh, there's this whole principle of risk and reward. The riskier the investment, right, there's greater risk that you could lose it, but there's also a greater possibility for reward, right? Uh, so risk and reward. To that, Jesus offers this no-brainer of an investment strategy. He tells us what to do, or he tells us what not to do, how not to invest, and how to invest. And first he says, do not invest, right? Don't accumulate treasure on earth. Why? Because it's either going to be destroyed or taken. Right? Pest will eat it. Corrosion will get to it. Someone will steal it from you. Or when you die. You have to yield it up, right? You don't get to take it with you. And so, right, you get the picture. Whatever wealth you gather here, you will lose. It's a 100% guarantee. Whatever wealth you gather for yourself here, you will lose. Either while you're breathing or when you stop breathing. Earthly treasure is a bad long-term investment Precisely because it's not long-term. It will not last. Right? The toys break a lot. That's true of little people toys and the toys that big people buy. They break. Clothes go out of style or out of size. It's the clothes. It's not you. All right? Personal debt is at its highest in years. Of course, we've heard plenty about inflation. There are plenty of things that eat their way away at our wealth. Now, for the record, Jesus is not forbidding wealth. He's not saying that having wealth, and even a lot of wealth, is an evil thing. There are wealthy people in Scripture. Jesus' ministry was funded by wealthy women. Okay? So Jesus is not forbidding wealth. He's not forbidding private property. He's not forbidding saving for the future. In fact, that's a very biblical principle. And even as we heard in 1 Timothy 6 that Steve read for us, he doesn't even forbid us enjoying God's good gifts. He gives us these things to enjoy. These are all things that Scripture commends. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying that you should put your wealth somewhere that it can never be lost. Look at verse 20. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why? Pest can't get to it. It won't corrode or be lost. And nobody can take it from you. It is the best investment strategy ever. No loss. All gain. And so the question is, how do we do that? What's, what's the difference between storing up treasure on earth and storing up treasure in heaven? Jesus doesn't really define that. 
But I love how John Stott, a pastor and commentator, says this. Stott says that to store up treasure in heaven is to do anything on earth whose effects last for eternity. You want to store up treasure in heaven? Spend your wealth in a way that will affect, that it will affect eternity. That's what that looks like. So helping people know and follow Jesus. Growing in your faith. Helping other peoples grow in their faith. Meeting the needs of the poor and the powerless. These are all things that Jesus commends. These are all things that have eternal reward. This is what it looks like to store up your treasure in heaven. Uh, I was listening to a podcast uh, by a guy named Art Rayner. And he mentions this book. I'm not sure I can say the title correctly. Inheritolatry. Inheritance and idolatry. Put them together and you have it. Right. The author is James Wise. It's about a Christian view of uh, planning for your wealth. But he talks about this great wealth transfer. And he estimates in his book that $30 trillion will be transferred from the boomers to the coming generations in the next 20 to 30 years. He assumes that, we just say that evangelical Christians make up 25% of that population That means that evangelical Christians, who we represent as a church, will have about 7.5 trillion of that amount. Those are the assets that will be transferred to evangelical Christians in the next two to three decades. Now, I'm about to throw some numbers at you. If you're a numbers person, you'll love it. If you're not, just hang on. Wise goes on to point out that there are about 3,200 unreached people groups in the world. That means, so people groups are groups of people. Um, And these are people who do not, who who have not heard the good news about Jesus. They do not have the scriptures in their language. They don't currently have a missionary who is living among them, reaching them. There are 3,200 of those groups in the world right now. According to Wise, it takes about $75,000 per year to reach one of those groups. And you need about 20 years for that work to be effective. So I had to multiply through all these numbers myself because I can't do it in my head. Let's just let's just do the math. If you multiply 3,200, the number of unreached people groups, by 75,000, by 20 years, you get 4.8 billion we will have in the next two to three decades 7.9, 7.5 trillion. It would only take, now I realize those are lots of zeros in there, 4.8 billion, y'all, is a drop in the bucket to 7.9 trillion. What will we do with the wealth that God has given to us? Will we spend it on our security? Will we spend it on our comfort and our pleasure? Or will we store up treasure in heaven? Where are you storing up your treasure? That's what Jesus wants you to ask yourself. And then he says this, and this is really the key point. Verse 21, your heart will follow what you treasure. Whatever it is you treasure, that is where your heart is. You want a key indicator 
of where your heart is, pull up your bank statement. Look at your calendar to see how you spend your time. These are good indications of what it is that you are treasuring. All of us, right, and and, and I'm pulling in now time as well as money. All of us have different amounts of time, treasure, and talent. Some of us have lots. Some of us have little. The amount is not really the issue. The question is, where are you investing it? Where is your heart? What are you doing with what God has given you? That's, that's one way that Jesus teaches us changes, to change our view of wealth. Then he shifts to another metaphor. He goes from treasure to eyesight. Look at verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. The meaning, right, is fairly straightforward. If you have good, healthy eyes, you can see pretty well. If your eyes are bad or unhealthy or sick, then you cannot see as well, right? Light, like if you can see well, then light is coming in. You see where you need to go. You see what you need to do. But if something's wrong with your eyes, then the light in you is darkness, right? It's hard for you to see. It's hard to know where to go. Particularly if you are completely blind, you're totally in the dark, then you wander around aimlessly, right? I have several friends uh, who've had cataract surgery, uh, and they say that the, the change is remarkable, right? Cataracts are these, this thick film that forms over your eyes, and everybody, you know, they only do one at a time. They only work on one eye at a time, and, and people who've had the surgery done say that it's, it's crazy the change, Right? That when, they have, when they have two eyes, one with cataracts and one without, the difference. Because not only do cataracts make everything blurry, so it's hard to see, but they also cast kind of a yellowish hue over everything. And so then when you remove that, not only can you see clearer, but you see colors again. So you get the picture of what it means to have a good eye versus a bad eye. Now, how does that play into what Jesus is saying here? Whatever you fix your eyes on, whatever you look at, will lead you light, will give you light or darkness. Similar to what he says about the heart. Whatever you set your heart on, that will be your treasure. Whatever you whatever you look at, whatever you're pursuing, whatever your aim is, that determines your direction. Are you moving into the light or are you moving into darkness? So if your eyes are set on God and his mission in the world, then your life will have direction and purpose. But if your eyes are set on wealth and accumulation and getting what you can get for yourself, then you will be wandering in the darkness. You know, I'll apply this to our building project that we have been talking about now for over a year you could assume, you might assume, that, I, that I'm going to say, if you'll just give to Grace Fellowship, you'll be storing up treasure in heaven. Right? Give to our building project so you can store up treasure in heaven. And there's a sense in which that is true. But it all depends on how you're looking at it. If you see a new building as having a shiny new thing or as... Uh, elevating our stock, the stock of Grace Fellowship in the community of Clanton and Chilton County, if those are the aims, right, if that's what you're looking at, then you're missing the point. 
the church existed long before buildings, uh, and we don't, God doesn't need them. All right? They are tools for us to use as best we can for his purposes. If that is what you are looking at, if you are looking at new buildings as ways to help people come to know Jesus and grow in Jesus, then that is the right outlook. That is how, that, that's, that's the healthy eye way to go. That's the eternal perspective. And so then the second question is, how do you see your treasure? Are you looking to accumulate more of it for yourself? Are you looking to spend more of it on yourself? Or do you have that eternal perspective? Are you saying, what can I do with what God has given me? Are you looking in the right direction? How do you see it? And then finally, the first two points are really summed up in the third. And that has to do with how we hold our treasure it all comes back to worship. This is really what it's all about. That's what Zach preached on last week as we concluded the sermons, right? Everything is for God's glory. Jesus uses the language of slavery. Verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Right? Slavery is not like employment. You can be employed by two different bosses. But when we're talking about slavery, you can only have one master. You can only be devoted to one master. The, the, the word for devoted there is cling to. Right? I want you to imagine right, if you wrap both of your arms around someone or something, what arms do you have left to wrap around something else? You don't. Or, to quote the great cinematic masterpiece, Sweet Home Alabama, you can't ride two horses with one rear end. Right? You can only serve one master. That's Jesus' point. And so the question is, who are you serving? And notice it's, it's the question of ability. No one is able. Uh, you cannot. You, you are unable to serve God and money. It's like he, he pits the two against each other as rival gods in our hearts. And they are. Are they not? Is our wealth not one of the most powerful forces in our lives, in the way that we think about ourselves? We cannot serve both as master, either God is master or money is. So, how does this work itself out in your life? Right? How, do, how do I make the move from one set of priorities to another? I already mentioned to you that idea of the wealth transfer, uh, wealth transfer between generations and what money can do. But on the personal level, this is how giving functions in the life of the believer. Or this is how giving can function in the life of the believer. Right? I don't know if you've ever thought this way about what you give to the church, if you give to the church or other kingdom causes. Uh, but oftentimes we think like, oh, this is just a spiritual discipline that I need to do because Jesus said so. 
And there is a sense in which giving is that. It is a, it is a duty that we see commended in Scripture over and over and over again. But what is it doing to our hearts? That's really the question, right? Jesus, again, said it, this is about the heart. What you treasure is where your heart is. So what does giving say about your heart? Well, it says that you trust God more than your financial security. If you are willing to give away part of your income, then you're saying, I'm going to trust God to take care of me without this amount of money. I'm just going to give it away, and I'm going to trust him to use it as he sees fit. I am choosing to live on less uh, so that I can trust and obey him. That's what giving does in the heart of the Christian. That's why it's an act of worship. It's not just a box that we check, but it's actually saying, Lord, this belongs to you. It's not my money. It's your money. You've given me enough to live on. Here's the rest. Do with it what you will. The same applies to uh, our time. And the same applies to our talents. I love what Paul says near the end of his life. His ambition, his goal, was to be spent for the gospel of Jesus. That's what I want. I want to reach the end of the race saying... Uh, that I was spent, that nothing was left, everything in the tank for him. That's what Jesus is talking about. How does that happen? It's easy to read a passage like this and feel guilty. You think about all of the coffee drinks you bought this week. You think about all the extra clothing you have in your closet that you don't wear. You think about the extra square footage in your home that you don't really use for anything productive. All of the stuff that's stored up in a storage unit somewhere, right? You think about all the stuff, because that's what we do. We accumulate stuff, and it's really easy to feel guilty. And Jesus, I think, certainly wants us to feel convicted, but that, that alone will not bring about change. What brings about real heart change is when you see that this is what Jesus did for you. That's what Paul says in, first, uh, in 2 Corinthians. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus spent himself and spends himself for you. Out of love for you. He gives us everything. Which means then that we are free to give it away. If Jesus has purchased for me everything that I will ever need from here until eternity, then I can be open-handed with all of, his, all of his treasure that he gives me. The gospel is what makes us generous, not guilt. So I want you to think about those things. Think about Jesus and think about the way, uh, think about where your treasure is and what God commands you to do with it. Let me pray. God in heaven, I pray that you would be our greatest treasure. That we would treasure you above every other treasure that we desire. And that we would not loathe or despise the gifts that you have given us. 
but that we would seek to spend them for your glory, whether that's a little or whether that's a lot. Lord, would you keep us from the sin of envy, that bad eye that's always looking for more, always looking at what other people have and wishing we had it ourselves. Would you take away from us that covetous, greedy eye? And would you show us, A, how much you've given us, and then B, how much you can do with it? Holy Spirit, would you motivate us to spend ourselves for you, for your glory, and for the good of others? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing in response to God's word.